escape the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. There is no discharge from the struggle that ultimately culminates each individual's life on earth. Yet, is it possible for every blow, setback, pain, or hardship to become part of a design and eternal purpose when placed in the hands of life's master architect? Then our daily vicissitudes might be seen as a cross, and the cross as the art of life. Today I'd like to share the, a subject that I've entitled The Cross as the Art of Life. In contrast to innovative and eminent approaches, the eminent and transcendent approach says that love, truth, dreams, hopes, families, our individual and community destinies, and so on, did not begin with the individual and hopefully will not end with him at least not if he comes to see the necessity of situating the family in a larger social and cultural context, one that is given from above. This view, as G.K. Chesterton suggested, enfranchises the best of the past. It does so in that it claims that those who poured out their lives for something greater than themselves did not do so in vain that because of the greatness of their self-sacrificing love, death cannot cancel out their lives or their contribution, that none of us in the great family of the faithful heart, past, present, or future, can live unto ourselves, but only for others, and not just for others in the present, but also for others in the future, and even others in the past who gave us our present. Thus do we affirm that love is stronger than death, and that such a tradition cannot void the will of God, which alone can comprehend such an all-embracing vision of interrelationships over time. Instead, it establishes the continuity of love and faith in all the generations faithful to eternal ways. It makes the will of our ancestors a part of our present by making the past a living part of the present, which in turn becomes a living part of the future. Indeed, even the possibility of a future depends upon what we in the present do even though we won't be here when others live out what we made possible, whether for good or for bad. It is therefore not surprising that transcending even all this, the traditional approach confesses that beyond living in the past or the future, there are some permanent things that remain, and they remain the same forever because they are of enduring worth. This future means that such cultural forms are givens, givens that reach down to us from beyond any individual in any generation and are therefore not any individual's own creation. This calls on each one to assume a more humble attitude toward life and relationships. Each, in other words, needs to learn first of all to stand in all of the other. 
whether that other takes the form of the other gender, of a time other than and beyond our own, or of the God other than and beyond our own will. Finally, such a view says that if these forms are of enduring worth, and if they have been found to work in the past, then cliches such as changing times, constant flux, and personal preferences cannot suffice to justify radical innovations or even extreme renovations. Indeed, we should sooner consider that whatever circumstances seem to demand the need for changing these things are perhaps more in need of changing themselves. Whatever is of enduring value and enduring effectiveness should be tampered with, if at all, only hesitantly and in awe. Moreover, it should usually be done with a view toward restoration rather than innovation. At the same time, things of transient value, such as the trends and dictates of changing times and personal preferences, all the latest fads and cultural innovations or conveniences, must by definition be freely questioned and liberally tampered with. This is true if for no other reason than to discern if, in the long run, their creativeness might not actually prove destructive to life. So, given the possibility of an enduring foundation for one's ethical views, if it comes to a question of which must change to conform, that which endures or that which is merely the latest fashion or trend, surely it will seem unquestionable to Christians as to which should prevail. Those who seek an enduring love will seek the most enduring givens for human relationships. And so for those who seek these enduring givens that come from an eternal giver, the traditional way inscripted by the transcendent God will be their choice. Such a traditional choice would presumably be true for any area of life, whether in craftsmanship, farming, and vocations, or in marriage, family, and community. From this viewpoint, then, marriage, family, and community all stand as constituent elements in another greater form, another given that is ultimately the transcendent expression of what we could call the eternal art of joinery that of joining people and relationships that can come to express the image and kingdom of God. Therefore, far beyond producing or possessing merely fine handcrafted furniture or houses or the like, it seems that anyone would naturally seek the highest level of craftsmanship and art in discovering and implementing the living design for such crucial human relationships as marriage and family. Few would be favorably impressed if in picking up a restored piece of furniture at the restorer shop, they were told by the artisan, we allowed our five-year-old to be creatively innovative in restoring your antique dining room table. A clientele that values what is being purchased or restored usually wants to know that a master craftsman 
created or restored their heirlooms. The question is, how could we want less for our individual lives, our marriages, our families, and our communities, especially our spiritual communities? But like learning any discipline or craft, it too requires a commitment to make this happen. To bring lives and relationships together in a transcendent harmony and then keep them there. There is much talk in the world today about sustainability. Sustainable culture, sustainable energy, sustainable agriculture, sustainable economies, sustainable housing, sustainable life, and so on. But the one ingredient many leave out of the picture of sustainability is the sine qua non of sustainability, commitment. In other words, how can we sustain anything that demands any sacrifice whatsoever without commitment? That's why commitment is the foundation upon which all sustainability rests. Yet people today find commitment an unpleasant notion, even distasteful. It suggests restraint, limits upon the whims and caprice and self-indulgent that so many misname freedom, but that is really a form of ethical and intellectual incontinence. But as political scientist Robert Axelrod has said, a community can only be effective in the context of long-term commitments, and the more long-term, the more effective. This means, of course, that the most effective relationships are the most committed and enduring ones. In a sense, sustainability is commitment. Beyond this, it is also possible to see the traditional family as a plexus of living relationships, a unit that is part of an order which is as much of a given spiritually as is the human body naturally. This order allows the family as a unit to hold a life of its own that cannot be enjoyed or experienced when its individual constituent parts are ripped asunder and abandoned to their independent, co-equal, neutralized selves. All these considerations lead us to stand with those who believe something special and unique exists between a man and a wife, between parents and children, something that cannot be experienced apart from the given order that joins them together in a certain form of relationship, any more than a hand can experience life if severed from the body or if grotesquely sutured to its own favorite self-invented and redesigned place, say on the forehead or between the eyes. Just as in the case of the human body, the family, and even any community based on the notion of givens of destiny, of meaning, is simply not subject to radical redefinition and reordering, at least not without destroying its very structure as a given, a given that allows another unmanufactured given, life, to continue unfolding. When you destroy the given order of the family, 
you in short destroy both the life and the family. An apple tree chainsaw to the ground and then stacked next to the wall as cordwood hardly remains an apple tree or any sort of tree for that matter. This is true even though its constituent parts might still exist in their basically original form, except of course for their dissection and dislocation from all the rest and the fact that it will never again bear what gave it its identity apples. Or take another more gruesome example. Upon entering a room that has a human leg lying on a chair, another in the closet, a torso behind the couch, two arms against the wall, and a head over by the stairwell, no one would say that they just met the nicest person in that room. The person is no longer there. Rather, a murderer has been at work. Life inheres in the wholeness of the precise form, the fixed order of relationships that the parts assume. And so if you destroy the form, the order, you destroy the life and are a murderer or a slaughterer of that life. With then a reinvented family, you can pretend that what you then have is still a family. But just because you choose to call a copperhead a cottontail, and you exult in your freedom to do so, it doesn't turn serpents into rabbits. Those who love life will always ask what form any given relationship is to assume. How, that is, should people relate to one another in order to form a certain type of relationship, a relationship that sustains life. It is not, for example, merely the proximity of a man and a woman that forms a marriage. Neither is it reproductive activity between genders that forms a marriage. Otherwise, we could say dogs are married, or that even roaches are married. Nor is it merely a male and female sticking together for life and not cohabiting with others of the opposite sex. For them we can say that mourning doves marry and Canadian geese marry. But hopefully most still haven't gone quite so far in their detachment from reality to claim in all seriousness and without tongue in cheek that animals marry. What form then must the relationship assume in order to qualify as a traditional marriage. What makes the relationship into a tree of life rather than merely two pieces of cordwood standing or lying side by side? And what makes adults and children a family instead of several stacked cordwood pieces of what perhaps could have been a family but isn't? What constitutes believers as a church, a body, instead of merely disembodied members lined up like pieces of cordwood on church pews. Of course, the complete form the relationship assumes as a given from God, a given that sustains the life of the whole, will ultimately define it and determine whether it is meaningful or meaningless. And perhaps this is one reason the New Testament refers to the church as the temple of God a structure whose form 
was fastidiously made, operated, and preserved according to the pattern that held and sustained its life in its most sacred form, one not to be profaned and tampered with. So for Christian, the mention of a cultural context larger than couples or families, but a context that can shape and support couples and families, brings us to the concept of Christianity as the church, as the corporate body of the Christ, an anointed body in which all believers and their relationships find new life. And yet it has been a truism, at least in theory, that for 2,000 years the way of Christianity is supposed to be the way of the cross. This presents an anomaly to the thinking of many moderns or postmoderns. It is perplexing to them not only because they see a distinction between this ideal and what presents itself as the church today, but also because such skeptics cannot see any correlation between such a religion on the one hand and human life as an art on the other. Yet how this latter could be a possibility becomes more understandable by looking at the way one critic has described the craftsman's work. Clay is pounded, flax beaten, wool teased, carded and twisted, metal softened and struck. The substance, whether material or human, must change its character, be torn into separate elements in order to be reformed into something other. It must die in order to be reborn. So then, from this artist's perspective, the way of the cross would appear to be the only way of fashioning or refashioning human life into art. The way of the cross is the way of the artist. Thus did a cabinet maker's son long ago tell us, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This call to the cross was in one sense then the call to the discipline of life as art, not an art or a life admittedly of our own creation, but rather one that shapes us into the given image of the master crafter of human lives, the creator. When viewed in this way, the adversities, vicissitudes, sufferings, and blows of life become not the incomprehensible and unjust workings of blind chance, not a chaotic and absurd source of never-ending perplexity, but the pounding of the clay, the beating of the flax, the carding of the wool, the striking of the metal, the crafting into form, the dying to be reborn. And so the way of life becomes the way of practicing a discipline, the way of art, the way the disciple relates to the master crafter of human lives. And it is not simply a matter of learned skills, but it is an imparted work received by submitting ourselves to the Creator, to the author and finisher of our faith, through any and all the channels he has designated for our shaping and design, through all the givens of our lives. Everyone faces this carding and twisting, these compressions and reductions, these kneadings and softenings and temperings, 
They come in the form of physical, mental, and emotional trauma and pain, and long-term suffering, of accidents and disease and other misfortunes, of misunderstandings and of strained or even broken relationships, even of persecutions and slander, or of loss of family, friends, home, or financial security. Are all these merely the meaningless happenings of time and chance? Or are they the blows of the metalsmith's hammer, the poundings of the potter's fist, the cutting by the joiner's chisel? The answer depends on one's attitude, one's viewpoint, and the design into which one sees one's life being fitted and configured. If you believe in Marcel Proust's admittedly troubling view, then you believe happiness may be beneficial for the body, but in his words, it is grief that develops the powers of the mind. Solomon, of course, said it long before Proust, and more eloquently too. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. If meaning comes from the relation any given elements have to one another, then a door hung in space is meaningless in that it is totally unrelated to its surroundings. And in fact, I once hung a door from the rafters to see what people coming to a particular meeting would think of it. They were all reluctant to still call something so totally wrenched from the context that gave it meaning a door. Such a door serves as neither an entrance nor an exit. But if we took the same door, which in that circumstance seems so absurd or alarming, and put it in its proper place, in its appropriate setting of relationships, then we would simply take its meaning for granted. We wouldn't even think about such things as meaning. Design, in the sense of how things are related, becomes almost everything in regard to finding meaning and working out relationships. Thus Paul tells us that God has composed the body just as he wanted it to be. Many, of course, say that they want relationship, not form. But form is relationship, and without form, there is no relationship, only confusion and chaos and conflict and turmoil, all marked by not only unjoined pieces, but also unjoined lives. So when God began to open a door of relationship between himself and humankind, he chose a specific form designated for a specific place, the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the singular place where heaven's transcendent pattern, from the Latin pater, father, invaded fallen earth's chaos, where God offered a new level of covenant relationship with lapsed humanity. It was a concrete, specific form where the eternal and infinite framed a door into the world of time and space to offer mortals access to the infinite and transcendent God. 
Moreover, this was a door that people could understand and grasp. And of course, Jesus, who declared his body to be the true temple, also declared himself to be this door. And that he had come to lead many sons to glory and to fitly frame them together as his spiritual house. So we can say that the form of the temple is what gives meaning to the door of relationship. A relationship must lead somewhere. Without the form of the temple to enter into, the door of relationship loses its meaning. It becomes like a door hanging in space, a door that leads nowhere. The temple served then as God's means to bring his relationship with people out of the realm of meaningless abstraction, the realm of merely human mental speculations. Instead, the temple brought that relationship into the realm of the concrete reality of God's own sovereignty and presence. In short, the temple brought to an abrupt halt all human fantasies and imaginings that had usurped God's own prerogatives. It placed the relationship between the human and the divine into the real world of time and space, the world in which people had to first face the fact that they were indeed bound by death, at least if they ever hoped to outpace the sands or the breath slipping through the narrow neck of glass. Of course, God intended to build this relationship according to his plan and not ours. To understand the integral bond between relationship and form brings us to a deeper and fuller understanding of the significance of the difficulties and even the sufferings we each face in life. We can see then, at least if a hand can be discerned behind the hammer, if an anvil can be seen beneath the glowing metal, that in the course of our lives, both the fire that touches us and the blows that rain down upon us mean something dramatically different than if they were simply randomly falling on us from out of nowhere, while we find ourselves ablaze in the incomprehensible and fiery trials that someone dares to call a forge. This is, again, admittedly not an easy perspective to achieve. As the popular saying goes, growing old ain't for sissies. It takes a certain kind of faith and fortitude, a willingness to bear pain and still come out with a smile, or at least with a soft look of hope and love. As Kierkegaard said, affliction is able to drown out every earthly voice, but the voice of eternity within a man it cannot drown. When by the aid of affliction all irrelevant voices are brought to silence, it can be heard, this voice within. Thus we learn why Christianity can seem to ooze out as a bland but cloyingly sweetened porridge in the midst of prosperity but becomes a sharp and powerful 
history-making force than the forge of persecution. The key question that comes to mind is whether we will insist on our own design, the invention of ourselves, and the conformity of everything and everyone to that design, or if we will at some point finally yield our lesser selves to a greater design. If we insist on our own self-invention, then we are bound to face some tragic disappointments that will no doubt tempt us to blame God, life, and everyone and everything else for letting us down. If we accept a larger design than one we can invent or imagine, then we can submit to the shaping blows of life that will fit us into the master design, a design that the separate elements within the design cannot themselves always see, since it is so much bigger than they are. But by our acceptance, our surrender, we shall come to know in our hearts that this hard metal of our lives is being heated, softened, and pounded for purpose greater than our selfish ambitions and egocentric indulgences. And though the hammer may not be swung or the fire stoked personally by God, we have seen them become personalized in the singular life of the crucified Christ, who through love turned the seemingly blind blows of injustice and human cruelty into the salvation of the world. The same can occur in the context and design of Jesus' corporate life in the community of Christians that calls itself his body, ruled by his very spirit under his very headship. So to get inside of this Christ and his body, or as Paul describes it, to be fitly framed into those relationships that God has composed is the goal. When we are reduced enough to fit into such a place, it means our life has been hidden in that secret place where every blow that seems like injustice or brutal or at least unfair caprice becomes the hammering blows building the house of our salvation. The psalmist said it all so much more simply and eloquently. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me there, and he shall set me high upon a rock. For Christians, then, the blows and the fire are not simply the mindless accidents or injustices encountered in a meaningless life or the arbitrary whim of some impersonal and capricious cosmic force. They are the necessary fashionings of life into the image of God's love and holiness in a world that otherwise can seem at times without form and void. 
They are what retrieves meaning from chaos. And so it is the design of both Jesus's individual and corporate life, how all the members of that great family are being related into a meaningful whole that reveals a personalized meaning for each of us and our sufferings. And our sufferings can become, like those of the one whom we claim to be members of, a means of realizing Christ's salvation for ourselves and for the world. The question then becomes whether or not we have submitted ourselves to this design of this individual life, the life of Jesus, and have done so by submitting to the design of the larger corporate life over which Christ now reigns his head. For it is the design of the relationships that ties the members of the body together in God and that thereby gives people the form to hold the content of a love as strong as death, as Solomon said, a love that binds all together in perfect unity, as Paul wrote. It personalizes the hammerings and forgings of life into art by tempering, protecting, covering, forgiving, and healing us as we pass through the searing experiences and buffeting blows of self-revelation and behold life, even our own life, revealing itself to us as the art of God. The dismantling of the world we would create for ourselves is often first necessary so that a greater work can take place in our souls to prepare our place in the artist's house. But how, in a concrete, specific sense, can all the pain and suffering we face seem like anything but the mere reductions taking us down to dusty death? Life truly does seem like a race between two reductions. Most know only the reduction of death. They never see that these reductions can be subsumed in the reductions of love. Death reduces by decomposing, tearing apart, fragmenting, destroying the relatedness of all things, the familial order of all life. In some sense, death seems like the ultimate step in a continuum of independence, isolation, and finally the supreme loneliness, or rather aloneness. Love, on the other hand, reduces by continually moving to get the sources of independence and isolation out of the way and then pulling together into a new form all the elements that can hold life. It binds up the fragments. It heals broken parts and makes whole and obvious the relatedness of everything. It calls us out of isolation, out of selfish independence, and to lose ourselves in a certain form of relationship, that of the purest of all possible loves. When understood from this perspective, marriage and family comprise one of the great battle stations as love and life conspire 
against death. They call on first a couple and then a whole family to, in Mike Mason's words, wholeheartedly, with full consent and joy, enter into their own diminishment. To freely lay down their lives for love, rather than to have life merely dragged away from their little towers of selfishness by the long but inexorable process of drawing and quartering that people call death. It is love that constantly calls on us to surrender to the form of human relationships that has alone conquered death. Christ, first in his individual body and now in his corporate body, where love stays busy overcoming death. This includes that body's constituent elements of marriage and family. No one can deny that such a commitment in one way reduces us. Yet, in one sense, all of life represents a series of reductions. As Mr. Mason went on to say, it seems sometimes as if we no sooner grow deeply attached to people, places, and even things than they are torn from us against our will. This happens even to our own bodies. Mason tells how both Paul and Peter compared our bodies to tents, the most make-do and transient of dwellings used regularly only by wandering desert Bedouins. Even human aging itself and its reductions of human life has been called the progress of death. To survive into old age often seems like a process of discovering that what once appeared as the most basic ability to meet our most elemental needs must now slowly, piece by piece, be dismantled and taken away. Our youthful vigor, our beauty, our strength, our memory, our health, our friends, our loved ones, our comfortable home, our mental capabilities, our physical mobility, our intellectual and artistic pursuits, our place of work that gave us such meaning and recognition, our freedom under law to make our own decisions and choices, even our capacity to eat certain foods or take care of our most essential bodily functions. As Mason so graphically put it, an old man is a ruined city, a fallen kingdom, a disaster area full of leaks and potholes and crumbling walls. There may be nothing left of life at the end but the faintest squiggle on a piece of graph paper. And even that may be unceremoniously flicked away like a speck of lint from the collar of the dashing young world. Or, as W.B. Yeats put it, an aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Mason further concluded, there is no escaping this fate, no circumventing our planned obsolescence in this world. We may perhaps momentarily appease it with diet, rest, exercise, surgery, medicine, or some sort of physical discipline, but such an appeasement is only momentary. 
Neither is there any religious faith that will ultimately reverse the process, at least not in this world. We can strike no permanent truce or bargain with it, nor buy it off with good deeds. Solomon said it with both clarity and finality. There is no discharge from that war. We have eaten the tree, and regrettable as it may be, we shall surely die. On one level, life is simply not sustainable in this world. Sadly, this threat looms so huge for some that the inevitable and final loss consumes the whole of their existence, and so they go to their graves in bitterness, resentment, and even sometimes rage. Life to them becomes nothing but the ashes of death's reductions because they have never known the reductions of love that can beat death at its own game and take the heartwood, the invisible soul of a human being, and fashion it into the image of a life of selfless giving, a life that so completely surrenders to love until, when the last blows of death come, nothing remains standing for death to strike except the love against which death has no power. People who fail to see this alternative miss the vision of love, of the cross as the art of life. So all they can see is the impersonal, insidious, meaningless specter of death as it beats at their door in the middle of the night, frightens them, weakens them, humiliates them, isolates them, and knocks out all the supports of their life until, having nothing left to stand on, they simply spin listlessly down the spiraling drain of a dwindling existence in a world condemned to death. It happens even though we in our adolescent mindsets may repeatedly boast, even with a bold laugh, that this will never be our fate. Tragically, concentrating their whole lives on what is merely material, temporal, transient, hoping that the pitiful struggle to hold on to such things will somehow triumph over an obsolescence that all life bumps and rattles along toward. Some people spend much of their life flippantly dismissing permanent things. Thus do they make a public confession of their preference for things of temporary value and worth over and above eternal ones. In short, they dismiss both in effect and practice the kingdom of God. When seen in this light, redeeming love is more, however, than the way we practice for the kingdom of God. It is the world to come. It is all that we shall be allowed in the consummation of the kingdom of God. Thus marriage and family and the body of Christ are more than anything else forms on earth to hold the content of a certain expression of love sent from heaven, but always journeying on its way back home, carrying those it has been sent for. Even the form bearing this great love, at least as far as marriage and family are concerned, shall itself pass away, as Jesus said. But the content shall endure forever, for love never fails. If we do not see marriage and family in this way, we are in for some 
profound disappointments. Marriage and family are not then flights from life's reductions. They simply help us place our reductions in the context of redeeming love. Where everything in us that needs diminishment is exposed and confronted so that in the end, death cannot permanently latch onto us and hold us. Instead, Christians believe that their lives can become hidden through Christ's love in God. In any case, flight or retreat from diminishment is futile, whether we choose love or not, for life's reductions hunt us down no matter where we may run to hide. Marriage and family simply provide one way we can pass through these reductions under the transforming power of love. When we can perceive a great love not merely in heaven, but even reaching down from heaven to incarnate itself on a fallen and diminishing earth. And when we can see that this love can become so powerful that it actually inspires people to lay down their lives for others, it gives us greater courage to turn and face even the ultimate enemy that is trying to hamstring our souls until death is swallowed up in the final triumph of God's unfailing love. So the promise of marriage and family is that when we suffer, it will not be meaningless, a mere door in space. Even suffering can be sacralized and transmuted when we freely lay down for love, when we sacrifice what we must at last one day lose anyway. We lose what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. By doing so, we place our sacrifice in an account that shall never empty because the credit behind it is the unfailing, redemptive love of the eternal God. So love finally triumphs over death in another way, too. For instance, the collective memory of humankind bears abundant testimony that the lives of those who loved with this love love and were loved by it have been far too enriching, too weighty, too wonderful to ever be canceled out by something like death. That is why those who have died in a context of relationships such as that which Christ's body provides nonetheless continue to live on through that vulnerable and battered little unit of love called the family and through that family of families called the kingdom of God, a kingdom into which we're born anew as sons, generation after generation of those who have gone on through their prayers and the character they passed on to others, even now rise from their graves and into the hearts and values and beliefs and lives and loves of those who follow the example that they left behind as their works praise them in the gates. Thank you for listening to this audio message. It is our hope that you have been both challenged and inspired by the Word of God. For other messages and materials by this author, please visit www.homesteadheritage.com.